Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired, and materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors, and no unauthorized use or publication is permitted. We'll start with an article from the September 4th issue, the heading 2030 The Oceans. Title, The Healing Sea, by Aaron Baker, with additional reporting by Simone Shah. In a quest to preserve the zones that let oceans thrive, ecologist Enric Sala heads for the South Pacific. Enric Sala marine ecologist, conservationist, and ocean advocate is standing under a life-size replica of a northern Atlantic right whale at the Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. And the air outside is smudged with wildfire smoke drifting down from Canada. It's not surprising that Sala wants to talk about the smoke or about whales. Their poop, however, is an unexpected twist. According to Sala, Whale excrement, or more precisely, the lack of it, has a role to play in the choking miasma that has forced my interview with one of the world's most foremost ocean explorers indoors instead of out on a boat. It may seem like a stretch, the kind that relegates environmentalists deep into woo-woo territory, but as our conversation unfolds, it starts making sense. Whale poop fertilizes ocean plankton. The plankton reproduces rapidly, absorbing carbon dioxide as it photosynthesizes sunlight. Eventually, it sinks to the seafloor, trapping the planet-warming gas in layers of sediment. Fewer whales means less plankton sequestering carbon dioxide, leaving more of it in the atmosphere. That means more of the heat driving the wildfires that have smoked out much of North America. Suddenly, we're seeing that the impacts of climate change are not something that is going to be suffered by somebody else, says Sala. It's here. And so it is. In the wildfires, heat waves, and floods that have made the weather of summer 2023 some of the most extreme on record. Greater biodiversity, whether it's found in the ocean's whale populations or the old growth forests that also store carbon, can help mitigate the effect of burning fossil fuels much more cheaply than any new technology, he says. The more nature we have, the more nature will be able to absorb our negative impacts. Sala's links between healthy ocean ecosystems and human benefits like carbon sequestration are backed up by science that he has either committed to memory or conducted himself but it's the ability to break scientific complexity into simple concepts that even landlubbers can comprehend that makes him so effective as an ocean advocate, helping rally global governments to commit to protecting 30% of their coastlines and open and ocean territories by 2030. His pristine seas project, sponsored by the National Geographic Society, has identified dozens of the ocean's most biodiverse hotspots in an effort to call for their protection. Already, he has managed to get 2.5 million square miles of coastline and ocean set aside 
in 26 marine protected areas, an expanse twice the size of India, where fishing, dumping, mining, and other destructive industries are prohibited. On May 24th, Pristine Sea's scientific research ship, the EV Argo, lifted anchor for its most ambitious undertaking yet, a five-year expedition to the remote tropical Pacific, where Sala plans not only to chart the world's biggest ocean from its unplumbed depths to its more familiar shores, but also to document the complex links between marine ecosystems and the lives they support on land in order to build a case for their conservation. The ocean needs that help more than ever. The morning of our meeting, the European Climate Monitoring Agency reported that May 2023 had seen the highest ocean temperatures on record. Increasing ocean acidity, weakening marine ecosystems, and forcing coral polyps to expel their colorful symbiotic zooxanthellae algae in a near-death phenomenon called bleaching. By the end of July, waters off the coast of Florida had reached jacuzzi temperatures, and volunteers were racing to transfer fragile coral sprouts to indoor aquariums before they cooked to death. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, about 40% of the world's oceans are currently experiencing a marine heat wave, which is much as 50% forecast for September. The ocean has already absorbed more than 90% of the planet's greenhouse gas-fueled warming, explained Sala, but it will not be able to absorb our impacts for much longer, without serious consequences. The havoc wreaked on coral reefs destroys habitats that nurse, nourish, or shelter a quarter of all marine life, including the fish that provide critical protein and income to a billion people around the world. Goods and services provided by reefs in the form of tourism, shoreline protection, food, and fisheries are valued at $2.7 trillion a year. The economic consequences of reef loss are grim and looming ever closer, says Sala. A two degrees centigrade or higher rise in average global temperatures since humans started burning fossil fuels for energy would be enough to wipe out an estimated 99% of existing coral reefs. The month of July already averaged 1.5 degrees centigrade. I find that I am rarely invited back to dinner parties, he deadpans. Still, Sala says, there is hope. His research has proved again and again that given the space to recover undisturbed from human exploitation, nature can bounce back. A marine protected area cannot make that water cooler, cannot protect from warming, but what we know is that fully protected areas are more resilient. He has watched pristine reef systems bleached white by marine heat waves recover within five years, but only when they have their full cohort of predators like sharks, along with the smaller inhabitants they prey upon. A reef, he says, isn't just made up of coral. It is a delicately balanced ecosystem that includes bacteria, algae, 
plants, clams, crabs, urchins, herbivores, and the carnivores that keep them all in check. Take one element out and the entire system becomes unstable. You board a plane and the pilot informs you that five screws are missing, but you don't know from where. Would you still fly, he asks. Sala's solution for protecting the ocean from rising heat is simple. Identify the richest areas of a biodiversity and protect them from human intervention. Left alone, the resulting abundance will eventually spill over into unprotected zones, stocking new areas with fish that can be harvested for human consumption, while allowing for the evolution of genetic adaptation to a changing climate. Marine protected areas, says Sala, are like an interest-bearing savings account. As long as you don't touch the principal, you can live off the interest. The only way to get more from the ocean is to have more life in the ocean, says Sala, and the only way to have more marine life is to set some places aside so that that marine life can thrive. It's as simple as that. As an avid snorkeler growing up close to the near barren waters of Spain's Costa Brava, Sala always assumed that the lush underwater gardens of his favorite Jacques Cousteau documentaries could be found only in faraway tropical paradises. A chance scuba lesson in the Mendes Islands Marine Park, one of Spain's first marine protected areas, taught him that the Mediterranean could be just as much an underwater wonderland when it was protected from the region's industrial fishing fleets. Everything that was missing from the sea of my childhood was there, he recalls. The grouper, the sea bass, the scorpion fish, the octopus, the sea bream. That epiphany sparked an interest in marine conservation, and with a Ph.D. in ecology, he went on to help establish the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation in 2000 at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. But despite his tenured position, generous research grants, and the opportunity to work with the best ocean scientists in the world, he still felt something was missing. The places that I was studying were falling under the force of the relentless human sledgehammer. He wrote in his 2020 memoir, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Corals and seagrasses were dying everywhere and fish were being taken out of the water faster than they could reproduce. Lush underwater gardens full of large animals were being turned into dead reefs, overgrown by brown algae and murky jellyfish dystopias. I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of ocean life. He felt, he says, like a doctor telling his patient how they would die without offering a cure. So he quit and went in search of a cure. Pristine Seas was inspired by a National Geographic story about an explorer who trekked across Central Africa and persuaded the president of Gabon to create a chain of national parks to protect the region's wildlife. Sala wondered if the same could be done for the oceans. In 2007, Sala approached the National Geographic Society with a proposal to combine exploration research, policy, 
and documentary film to build a case for local governments to establish national marine protected areas. He envisioned pristine seas as a kind of scientific SWAT team, refining our understanding of ocean life by sending divers, submersibles, and cameras into waters previously unplumbed by research and working with economists, ecologists, and climate scientists to calculate the value of preserving what they found. Since 2008, the program has conducted 38 expeditions, produced 30 documentaries, and published more than 250 peer-reviewed studies that have upended long-held assumptions about marine ecosystems, including the power of highly protected areas to rapidly restore depleted fish, coral reefs, and kelp forests in adjacent waters. In a 2021 paper for Nature, Sala demonstrated that protecting 30% of the ocean would also deliver benefits for commercial fisheries and carbon sequestration. He identified key areas that, if protected, would provide the most benefit in terms of nature conservation, food production, and climate mitigation, a kind of more bang-for-your-protection-buck checklist that he is now trying to persuade local governments to implement. Overall, Pristine Seas has helped midwife a total of 26 marine-protected areas into existence, raising the percentage of protected ocean from 1% to 8%. That is still significantly less than the 30% that scientists say is necessary to protect ocean biodiversity. Sala visibly flinches when reminded of that shortfall and acknowledges the pressures piling up since he started 15 years ago from a quadrupling of plastic waste to higher temperatures and increased fishing pressures. Now I'm working on the cure, but the patient is just getting worse and worse, he concedes. We fix the lungs, but oh, now there's something wrong with the liver. Oh, and now there's a blood clot. So yeah, it's a Sisyphean task, but that's what makes me keep going. I don't see a bigger purpose than working to save life on Earth. In a 2009 expedition to Kiribati's southern line islands, a chain of uninhabited atolls, 1,800 miles southwest of Hawaii, Sala found reefs that had never seen pressure from commercial fisheries, a thriving coral jungle full of large fish. Before then, he says, scientists had no idea what pristine reefs really looked like. In 2015 and 2016, disaster struck. A marine heat wave triggered coral bleaching in more than half the reef. Sala thought he was witnessing the destruction of one of the ocean's last intact coral colonies. But a return visit in 2022 demonstrated a miraculous recovery. Coral was growing back, and the fish were as plentiful as they had ever been. It recovered like a phoenix rising from the ashes, he said. Documenting the reef's recovery wasn't enough, though. Sala wanted to understand why those corals survived the heat when so many other reefs did not, and how that recovery could be replicated elsewhere. 
Sala theorized that small grazing fish had kept the bleach coral free of the brown algae that usually takes over, enabling the coral polyps to regain their zooxanthophyllae and start growing again. In June, Pristine Seas returned to the area in one of the first stops of its new Pacific expedition, in part to test Sala's hypothesis. Was it the presence of large numbers of fish? Or because larvae from other less affected corals were able to take root among the ruins? Had the surviving corals evolved some sort of heat resistance? If we believe that high protection is a key ingredient from coral resilience, we need that data, he says. One of the most effective components of Sala's pristine seas expeditions is the opportunity to offer a front row seat for the ocean's underwater marvels to the people who can make a difference. We take presidents, ministers with us. They come out of the submarine saying, this was the most transformative experience of my life, says Sala. Once they make the emotional connection, Sala presents them with the economic case for protection and the policy proposals that help them sell it to their people. After going out with Pristine Seas in 2022, then-Colombian President Ivan Duque more than doubled the country's marine protected areas, bringing it within reach of the 30% goal and joining forces with regional neighbors Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Panama to establish the largest protected marine zone in the Western Hemisphere, if not the whole world. It is this combination of action-oriented research and passionate advocacy that has enabled Sala to be so effective, says Jennifer Jacquet, a fisheries researcher and visiting professor of environmental science at the University of Miami, who has co-authored papers with Sala. He is someone who understands that advances in science are incremental and that actually the most urgent problems are social ones that require politics and policies and advocacy, things that many scientists don't feel comfortable with. Equally at ease slipping into a wetsuit on the deck of the AEV Argo as he is networking in a shirt and tie at Davos, Sala has a passion that is infectious and incredibly effective at captivating the people who have the most power to protect our oceans. Government leaders Jane Lubchenko, a marine ecologist who led NOAA from 2009 to 2013 and a co-author on the Nature MBA paper, recalls watching him present his early findings to a panel of Norwegian lawmakers in 2018 to help rally support for a global commitment to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. Going in, says Lubchenko, they were dead set against it, convinced that marine protected areas would harm the country's lucrative fishing industry. But as Sala spoke, you could feel the tone of the room change. Before they had been told that they had to choose between fisheries and biodiversity or between climate change benefits and food security, his message was that if you use science to pay attention to where these hotspots are, 
you can actually maximize it all. Nobel Foundation Executive Director Vidar Helgeson, as Norway's then Minister of Climate and the Environment, had invited Sala to present. Enric's impressive presentation, and not least his case that protection actually increases fishery volumes, served to strengthen the hand of those supporting protection and weaken the resistance of others, he says. Norway went on to support the 30% target, and as chair of the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, encouraged other countries, including the fishing stalwart of Japan, to follow suit. More than advocacy, more than science, Sala's key sales point for ocean protection is hope. As fish stocks dwindle and ocean temperatures rise, Sala offers a solution that doesn't even require a sacrifice, just an adjustment. It's a potent antidote to the endless parade of doomsday scenarios that dominate today's client conversations, says Lubchenko, offering an an option to protect and restore the vibrancy of ocean ecosystems is very attractive because people can actually see that there is something that they can do. Could such policy be applied to the whole of the Mediterranean? Sala pauses in front of the exhibit of sea fan coral, a species that is all but gone from his old snorkeling grounds off the coast of Spain. His face flickers with emotion as he imagines what a protected Mediterranean would look like. Before you get in the water, you will see monk seals on the beach, he says. There would be kelp forests 60 meters deep, lots of fish, including very large groupers, starfish, and shrimp, and lots of lobsters, and octopuses, more of everything, he whispers before anchoring himself back into reality. The Mediterranean of the future is not going to be like the Mediterranean of the past. For one, it's warmer than it used to be, and invasive species have made it a permanent home. But we can still make it better than it is now. We just have to leave enough of it alone. We move now to another article in the same time issue. Baja in the balance. The campaign to preserve a region and a local fishing industry by Jeffrey Kluger. It's easy to spot the small family-owned fishing boats that ply the waters around Baja, California, a peninsula 1,223 kilometers or 760 miles long that presents the westernmost part of Mexico. There are 24,000 of the vessels, after all, and they spend much of their time at sea, as well they might. If the so-called artisanal fishermen are going to compete with the vastly larger industrial vessels that fish the same waters. The average artisanal boat measures 79 feet from bow to stern. Compared with the industrial vessels, which can easily exceed the length of a football field, 427 feet. And the industrial vessels are equipped accordingly, 
with nets that measure 1,968 feet across and baited lines that may stretch for 28 miles. There's a huge level of injustice there, says Christina Mittermeyer, a photographer, marine biologist, and co-founder of the U.S.-based ocean preservation group Sea Legacy, which is partnering with the Mexico-based group Beta Diversidad to address environmental and economic problems around Baja California. The industrial fishing fleet is owned by billionaires and subsidized by the government. The kind of mega-fishing the industrial boats do leaves a huge environmental footprint. Up to 96% of the population of bluefin tuna in the region is gone. For example, for every 2.2 pounds of shrimp pulled from the ocean, there are more than 20 pounds of unwanted bycatch, mostly juveniles of various species. The nets drag along the bottom of the ocean, damaging the delicate ecosystem of the ocean floor and releasing the carbon that has been sequestered in the sediment. It's not just the industrial fishing boats that are making a mess of these waters. It's also tourists. Ecotourism generally has a benign sound to it conjuring up images of respectful whale watchers looking for the great creatures from quiet boats idling at a distance. But things are not quite so peaceable. Unrelated tourism affects species like whales, orcas, marlins, sea lions, and dolphins, thanks to overcrowding of boats with no permits. Says Mario Gomez, president of Beta Diversidad. There can be 30 boats chasing one orca, says Mittermeier. I was in one of those boats 15 years ago. All of the whale sharks we saw had propeller marks on them. But there is a fix for all of this, with historical precedent. In 1995, the Mexican government, pressed by local activists, created the Cabo Pulmo National Park on the southeastern tip of Baja, California, covering both land and a portion of the offshore region. Cabo Pulmo once saw much of the devastation that the rest of Baja, California is suffering, but not anymore. Industrial fishing is prohibited, and ecotourism is heavily regulated. The result has been a 465% increase in the population and diversity of fish in the local waters and a recovery of the region's damaged coral reef. In 2005, Cabo Pumo was named by the UN as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's become such a famous place, Mettermeyer says, and now people are saying, oh, we need more Cabo Pulmos. Sea Legacy and Beta Diversidad, along with other environmentalists, like Sala, are working to make that happen, leading a movement to create a protective zone that will fit like a sock over the southern half of Baja, California, where the peninsula's greatest biodiversity is found, extending into the waters of the Gulf of California to the east of Baja and the Pacific Ocean to the west. Some sport and artisanal fishing will be allowed near the coasts 
and a tightly regulated ecotourism industry, but no industrial fishing. Farther out into the ocean will be a no-take zone that will leave part of the Pacific and the Gulf of California entirely untouched. The tension really to preserve the traditional way of life of fishermen and preserve the economic activity of tourism, but with a regulation framework so that it's not a free-for-all, says Mittermeier. Beta Diversidad, Seal Legacy, and other environmental advocates, like Sala, plan to present their proposal in a formal request to Humberto Adan Peña Fuentes, Mexico's Commissioner of National Protected Areas. It would be up to Fuentes to approve the request and then pass it on to President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, who has the power to designate or deny the marine reserves. In the case of this designation, the most important group to protect are the artisanal fishers, because their livelihood is fully impacted, says Gomez. That is what really triggers the commissioner's interest. The advocates are hopeful, but time is short. Mexico's presidential campaign begins in November, with the election taking place next June. Environmentalists expect Fuentes to make his recommendation to Lopez Obrador near the end of the year, and in turn expect Lopez Obrador to make his decision shortly after that. Until then, the matter of Baja California remains very much open to question, and that leaves supporters of a protected zone committed to telling the tale of their effort as widely and loudly as possible. I'm supporting this with all I have because humanity needs it, says Mittermeier. Without stories, the ocean dies in silence. We finish with an article called Questions. Jill Lepore, the Harvard historian, talks about her new book of essays, The Deadline, The Catastrophe of Social Networks, and why she hated the movie Barbie. This was interview was conducted by Olivia B. Waxman. Some of the essays in your new anthology are quite personal. In one, you write about having to hide your motherhood duties as a scholar and about having a miscarriage. What made you decide to tra- reveal such personal moments? That essay, which is the title of the collection, I wrote on the 20th anniversary of the death of my best friend, who died while I was giving birth to my first child. My friend Jane knew how much I wanted to have a baby and had been with me through all of those early struggles, including the miscarriage. When I was pregnant, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and she made this kind of crazy pact with herself and with me that she would not die until the baby was born. It was an expression of love and also her way of taking care of me. How could I possibly erase a detail that explains the momentous decision that this person I really love had made? Another essay gets into the history of Barbie. Have you seen the film? I hated the film. Why? To pretend that a story about peddling plastic Barbie dolls for a giant international corporation 
is actually a story of feminist liberation is unbearably sad to me. It's a bizarre, creepy love letter to tyranny and capitalism. One of the essays in my collection, which is called Valley of the Dolls, is about the intellectual property battle between Mattel and the manufacturer of the Bratz dolls. How do you think future historians will describe this period we're currently living in? Answer, future historians will be AI, so they'll write some very boring history. I'm not the person who says you must wait 50 years. The last essay in this collection, which is called The American Beast, is my reading of the January 6th Insurrection Committee report. Historians have an obligation to make sense of what's going on in the present with the absolutely explicit and abundantly confessed constraint that we don't know enough right now and we will know more later. That's why I do what I do, because I believe we have an obligation to try to make sense of the relationship between today and yesterday. Is there a historical figure or event you think would make a great movie? Answer. I've heard there's this really good biography of Jane Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's sister. Lepore wrote it. She gets pregnant at 15, marries the boy next door, who I believe had raped her, and what you had to do when you got pregnant was marry the rapist. She had 12 children with that guy who ended up in a lunatic asylum. She was poor her whole life. That is what ordinary life in the 18th century was like. It's not the story that Benjamin Franklin tells us in his autobiography. He erased her from the story of his life because it is inconsistent with his allegory for America that wants to make out of the story of his rags to riches life. Are you on Facebook or Twitter? No. Why not? Back to your question about future historians. I think the social networks will be looked on as having been fairly catastrophic. Facebook's business model is to monetize loneliness. I don't want to participate in any way in that business model. If tobacco companies had some great fun, free thing that was seemingly free, but was actually selling tobacco products to children, I also would not buy that. Last question. Was there a moment growing up that inspired you to become a historian? Answer. I had my Italian grandmother teach me how to make meatballs. I do not speak Italian, and she did not speak English. I cannot record what she knew. I'm fascinated by the loss of knowledge and the obligation of historians to recover archives. All right, we move now to the September 25th issue of Time Magazine. We begin with headline, Testing the City of Immigrants by Sanya Mansour. New York struggles to accommodate tens of thousands of migrants bussed in from other states. Ali Syed, father of six, 
tries to quickly change directions when his children hear the sound of an ice cream truck coming down a New York City street. He simply can't afford it. In Afghanistan, life was good, and they were eating everything, says Syed, who was a civil engineer before the Taliban's 2021 takeover. He fled with his family, first to Brazil, and then across the southern border into the United States, an epical journey that landed him not only in a new land, but also in its politics. Syed is among more than 100,000 migrants who have arrived in New York City over the past year. It's an influx that threatens to overwhelm the carrying capacity of a city that has made opening its arms to newcomers so fundamental to its identity, see the Statue of Liberty, that Southern and Southwestern governors set out to test it. Bussing tens of thousands of newly arrived migrants from Texas, Florida, and Arizona to 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, the Port Authority bus terminal. Never in my life have I had a problem that did not see an ending to, and I don't see an ending to this, Mayor Eric Adams told a gathering on September 6th. This issue will destroy New York City. In a nation of immigrants, New York may qualify as the capital. Almost 40% of its 8.4 million residents were born in another country. Two-thirds of the population in its five boroughs are either immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants. But the pace at which the recent immigrants have arrived, deliberately intended to stress test the safety net and assumptions of a democratic stronghold is unprecedented. New York City's right to shelter law means officials cannot legally turn away anyone seeking shelter. But the city and state have been fighting in court over the best way to house all these migrants. The city sued more than 30 New York counties for issuing emergency executive orders meant to ban the city from arranging asylum seekers to stay in private hotels in their jurisdictions. Syed is staying at the Roosevelt, which is a designated arrival center in addition to functioning as a shelter. But getting the space required waiting in line for 10 hours at a stretch for two days. He is so nervous about losing it that he asked that his name not be published. Syed is a pseudonym. In June, as those shelters neared capacity, the city created 206 emergency shelters, including so-called respite centers in school gymnasiums and parking lots. Many are bare-bones spaces providing little more than cots and a few meals. The respite centers are at the bottom of the barrel, says Mahmoud Mahmoudi, co-founder of EV Loves NYC a nonprofit focused on food insecurity. Because they are not permanent shelters, rules on cot spacing and the number of bathrooms per people can be overlooked, he says. Then there's the ice cream truck. Without jobs, the newcomers not only can't afford treats for their kids, they're also not going to be able to afford a place to live. So advocates, 
migrants, and New York politicians are increasingly focused on the kludgy prospect and the process for getting federal work permits. Migrants need to wait 180 days or six months after requests are taking about two months to process, according to a Department of Homeland Security officials. We need the federal government to allow asylum seekers to work so they can provide for themselves and their families, says Adams. Governor Kathy Hochul has said something similar. But the Biden administration has recommended that New York improve its end of the process. The waiting period for work permits is meant to discourage misuse by those without credible asylum claims. And the Department of Homeland Security notes that because the 100 days is written into statute, the agencies does not have any control over it. Congress does. Many on the other side of the issue argue that allowing migrants to work would incentivize crossing outside the legal process. Some migrants resort to working cash jobs in construction or delivery, but Syed says he won't. If the police found out, it could tank his asylum case. I will not put my family at risk, he says. A loose web of nonprofits and aid groups has developed to help migrants with everything from basic necessities like food, bedding, socks, and hygiene kits to legal advice. EV Loves NYC says it delivers about 2,000 meals across the city on Sundays. Syed relies on the group for halal meals. Power Malu, an organizer from the aid group Artists, Athletes, Activists, sets up every Friday at a church in Midtown Manhattan, where volunteers, including city employees, helping in their free time, legal aid attorneys, and bilingual English teachers gather to address the gaps in caseworker and legal services. But the issues of work and housing persist. On a recent Friday, three men from Mauritania wait at the church to connect with a volunteer attorney. Ekhali Mohammed Selma, age 24, says he has been staying at a respite center for almost two months. The security talks with us like we are animals, says we are strangers in this country. Every day, he and the two other men try, go and try to find work. Every day, they come back without a job. And we will stop there with our coverage of Time Magazine. And again, I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. And materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter. And it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.